Over my, uh, my time of being a Christian, I've often heard people talk about wanting to see Jesus, touch Jesus, and have a to and fro conversation with Jesus. And, uh, and I get that. Uh, whilst there's amazing aids that uh, God gives his people to help us relate to him, there is something that's actually tricky uh, about relating to someone who you can't actually hear audibly um, and uh, you can't actually see. Uh, we're halfway through one of the longest recorded conversations Jesus has with anyone. Uh, and it's a surprising conversation because it's in somewhat hostile territory for Jews. It's in the region of Samaria with a Samaritan woman um, who had been married five times and now is in a de facto relationship. Um, this, in my view, is actually one of the evidences of the truthfulness of the Gospels. Uh, when you read the Gospels, they're really ordinary. You know, what's Jesus doing? Well, he's sitting at a well, talking to a five-time divorcee from an area that the Jews didn't like, from a people that the Jews didn't like. You know, I've, you may not even know about it, there's, but there's some later false gospels, like documents, like the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Judas. And when you read them, they're so super spiritual. But when you come back to the early gospels, the ones that can be relied upon, the ones that can be trusted, they're earthy. And they're straightforward. They're not super spiritual. And what we've got here is we've got Jesus talking to an outcast of the outcasts. That's what we've got. Uh, it's an intriguing conversation. And for those who can remember it, um, when we, we dealt with the first part of it last time, it just seems like Jesus and this woman talk past each other. They're talking about two totally different things. And in one sense, they actually were. But what Jesus does is he keeps leaning in and then in verse 16 to 18 of chapter 4 um well actually look it up why don't you look it up with me john chapter 4 verse 16 and we'll just read that i've been talking about living water she's been talking about physical water he's been talking about something completely different he's been talking about himself being the living water for her john chapter 4 verse 16 then jesus cuts to the chase right he uh, he leans right in jesus said to her Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband. She gave a teenage answer, right? If you've had five husbands and the one you have now is not your husband, what you've said is true. Just uh, give the limited amount of truth there. Can you see what's happening? Jesus is making this whole conversation personal the whole way through and she's skirting around the edges, avoiding the personal. And it leaves me asking this question and I... I ask myself this question quite often. I want to ask you today, would you like to have a conversation with Jesus? Well, how would you answer that? Now, if you love Jesus, you'd want to answer yes. And maybe even if you don't love Jesus, you don't know Jesus, you get that. It would be interesting to have a conversation with Jesus. For those who love him, you'd probably want to answer yes, and I, I believe you probably would. But, you know, any conversation that you have is uh, an entering into an uncontrolled space. You don't know what the other person's going to say. You don't know what the other person's going to ask. If you had a conversation with Jesus, where would he go? What would he talk about? What would he ask? Perhaps you'd want your personal assistant to give him a few instructions first before you had this meeting. Now, when you sit down with Peter, don't, don't bring up that problem he has. He doesn't want to talk about that. 
or that particular area he's struggling with. Don't talk about that either. He doesn't want to talk about such and such. Just stay away from that topic of conversation. But who, who knows that isn't how it rolls with Jesus? It just isn't how it rolls. You know that having a conversation with Jesus would often be comforting and consoling. The scriptures themselves talk about how Jesus would be a bruised reed. He would be someone who wouldn't break a bruised reed. He would be someone who wouldn't snuff out a smouldering wick. But you also know that there's going to be things on his agenda that you don't want to talk about. Things that are going to be uncomfortable for you. You know that they're good things, but they aren't always comfortable things to talk about. Who knows that your agenda and Jesus' agenda don't always line up? Has anyone noticed that? Yeah. You know, what Jesus is doing with this woman at the well is he's making it about him and about her. And you can expect that when you have conversation with Jesus, he's going to make it about you and about him about me and him it's always going to get personal and in a lot of ways I think conversations with Jesus take the form of a a spiral and that's what we can actually see with this woman at the well is is he just slowly but surely gets into the center I don't know whether you've ever had that experience yourself where uh, you feel God leading you in a particular direction you say no does he give up no, he doesn't. He'll just go around the mulberry bush again and next time it'll be a little bit closer. And if you say no again, he'll just go around again because he has good plans and good things. The only question for us a lot of the time is how many times do we want to go around the mulberry bush, right? Um, sometimes I think we should just give in a little bit quicker. Anyway, let's read on in the conversation between Jesus and this woman. We'll uh, go from verse 19 of John chapter 4. So if you've got that in front of you, that would be really helpful be reading from the ESV the woman said to him after being outed for being married five times so I perceive that you're a prophet our fathers worshipped on this mountain but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship we'll get to that in a minute Jesus said to her woman believe me the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the father You worship what you do not know, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Now what what Jesus is saying there is the Samaritans only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament. So Jesus is saying, you actually don't know that much about me. And then he goes on to say, salvation actually isn't going to come. The Messiah isn't going to come from uh, the Samaritans, it's going to come from the Jews. Verse 23, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to I who speak to you and am he. Here's the first thing we see in this passage. What we see in this passage is a sidetrack. Note what's happening here. Jesus has just asked the woman about a very personal matter. He's just asked her about her failures. He's asked her about the failures, no doubt, that the town gossips had talked lots about. But what does she do? She raises a theological problem. <laughs> do you see it? It's a legitimate theological conundrum, but it's also a sidetrack. And I want to just take a moment to explain for you the nature of the theological 
conundrum that she raises. Now, between the Samaritans and the Jews, there was bitter dispute about where the temple should be, where you should worship. Both of them knew the importance of worshipping where God told them to. For the Samaritans, Mount Gerizim was the place where you were supposed to worship. It was where uh, Abraham built the first altar, where the people were blessed before entering the promised land in Deuteronomy 11. It's where the Samaritans believed God had told them to set up the temple. It's where the Samaritan tradition suggested Abraham and Melchizedek, the the priest king that uh, Hebrews talks about, that was where they actually met. It's tradition that it was actually Mount Gerizim where Abraham went up to sacrifice his son Isaac. The Jews, on the other hand, just went, nah, it's not, the temple's not meant to be on Mount Gerizim, it's meant to be in Jerusalem. The Jews held that the law taught that. There's many scriptures outside of the first five books of the Bible that speak to the temple needing to be in Jerusalem. But they didn't count for the Samaritans because they didn't believe in any of the other books after the first five that Moses wrote. So the debate was real. It's a relevant question. But note what the question does. The question keeps Jesus at arm's length for the woman, right? It wasn't a concocted question and it wasn't irrelevant. But it enabled her to stand at arm's length. And you know what? You and I understand this. We understand how this rolls. You know what it is like to talk about something, sometimes anything, rather than be personal. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? Just anything will do. It isn't just something that happens in the church. It's actually something that happens for humanity uh, more broadly. We talk about the weather, the sport, other people, We talk about movies, we talk about funny YouTube clips, crazy things other people have done, Uh, we criticise other people, we talk about what's in the news and in the church, we tend to talk about theology sometimes when we don't want to be personal about stuff. I remember uh, when I was going through uni, I worked in the warehouse at Coorong in Sydney, big warehouse. And uh, to whittle away the days, what would often happen in the Kurong warehouse, as you would expect in a Christian bookstore warehouse, is someone would come in and go, what do you think about predestination? And then the rest of the day was gone, like it'd be five o'clock before you knew it. Start the day with that and the rest would be history. I, uh, I have been to countless Bible studies where we sat, and it's a good thing in and of itself, but we sat, we talked a lot about theology and a lot about Bible and not very much about ourselves. It wasn't particularly personal. You look at this woman, it doesn't take much imagination to go, this woman has got a truckload of stuff going on in her life. What would that be like? What would it be like to be five times divorced and then being a de facto? But she opted not to talk about it. Let's not go there, we don't go there. And instead brought up a theological problem. And I want to say that I have a lot of compassion for her. I wouldn't want to go there either if I was her. If I'd been married five times and was now in a de facto, I wouldn't be keen to talk about it. You know, you think about it, there would have been plenty of talk about it already. How much talk would you have to have if you'd been married five times? I mean, I'm assuming that. Most of them didn't die. 
and that there was a lot of divorce in here. There'd be a lot of talk about that, right? Like, seriously, would you want to put yourself out there for someone else to have a crack at you? I don't think so. You know, there are good reasons. Um, there are good reasons why we duck and weave sometimes, right? And here's, here's three to get you started. The first one is shame. You know, shame, without spending lots of time on it, shame is a sense of we're just, we're worthless, we're not, we're subhuman, we're dirty, we're unclean, we're a special case. We don't feel good enough. Shame goes with sin. Whenever humanity sins, there's some shame that actually goes along with it. And who wants to be seen for not being good enough? Who wants, who wants to do that? Not me. <laughs> the second one is risk. You know, if you're going to be personal, you're going to need to be vulnerable to some degree or another. And that actually is a genuine risk that you're going to get hurt. Someone actually could hurt you. You know, if someone doesn't like your weather forecast, right, it's not going to bother you that much. And if it does, I'm happy to provide some pastoral care, right? But it's, it's just not going to bother you that much, is it? Like if you go, I think it's going to rain today, and someone says, I think there's no chance it's going to rain. It's not like you're going to have a breakdown at that point in time, okay? But put out, put out something that's personal about you, even something very small, and all of a sudden you're in a position where someone can actually hurt you. So risk is real. And the third one is uh, past hurt, and this is kind of connected to risk. Um, if you've been hurt by people in the past, you can expect it to be difficult to be personal. It's just the way that it rolls. Memories of uh, the way that you've been treated, the way that people have hurt you, can be very, very clear and very sharp. And it's probably, probably um, going to take a lot of years to... Um, if you've been hurt... Uh, severely recently it's going to take a lot of years to become more comfortable with being personal even in smaller things and what what will tend to happen is you'll think two three four five times before you decide to be personal well good thing is that we have a personal god who pushes in right in gentle loving beautiful ways and that's actually why we like to keep things personal at the project because god's personal Jesus is personal and he always deals personally with us. And it's actually the personal where all the change and the engine room of uh, transformation and restoration takes place. So even though we don't like it, it's good when Jesus goes there. Here's a second point. The first one was a sidetrack and getting back on track. And what actually happens here is she brings up this issue about where you should worship. And uh, Jesus actually engages it with a view to bringing her back to considering who he is and who she is. Her main question is, uh, where's the location where we should worship? Now, some of you might want to switch off. You're just going to go, I'm not a Samaritan, I'm not a Jew. It doesn't really matter to me where you worship. Maybe there's even some of you today who aren't Christian and you just go, I don't even think I worship anyway. But let me... Let me just remind you of something, and this is for everyone. It doesn't matter whether you're a Christian or not. Everyone worships unceasingly. Everyone does. There's always something in the center of your life that you curve your life around. The etymology of the 
English word worship goes right back to the idea of worthiness or worth-ship. You know, you worship whatever has the most value in your life. So it may not be Jesus, but it doesn't mean you stop worshipping at that point. You just start worshipping something else. So think about the thing, moment by moment, which captures your love, captures your desires, captures your sacrifice. The thing that you pursue, the thing you long for, the thing that you most want, that's the object of your worship. And I want to say to you that as physical beings, we're embodied souls, as physical beings... There's always a physicality to our worship. Worship always happens in a place. You you can look at someone's physicality and deduce sometimes what they're worshipping. If we're worshipping, you can can see it. And people can see us, if we worship stuff, people can see us accruing money and spending money on things. There's physical evidence for it. People can see if we worship control, and security, people will be able to see that too. You know, James K.A. Smith, an American guy, wrote a book called You Are What You Love. And he actually argues um, in one part of the book that uh, shopping centres are actually set up like temples. It's an interesting argument. He talks about the archways at the entrances, the glass doors, the inviting designs within, the windows to the sky but not the car park how they get decked out for the various festivals, how it offers a gospel of a good life if you buy their stuff. You know, there's, there's always a physical expression, physical dimension to our worship. That's, that's kind of hardwired as embodied souls. And it's important, but I want you to know it's even more significant for the Jews and the Samaritans. For them, it, there was a place you were supposed to go for worship. It was an obedience thing. And for the Jews, it was even more significant than that. For them, the temple was a place where God's presence was. It was God's house. You went there to worship. Now, have a look at John chapter 4 again. I hope you've still got it open in front of you there. You notice the very first thing that Jesus does to this question about where you should worship. Verse 21. Woman, believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem you worship the Father. What does he do? In one verse, he just sweeps out this whole debate about where you're going to worship God. He clears the decks and then he goes on to drill much deeper than mere physicality. She wants to know where to worship. He's going to teach her how to worship. (laughs) That's what he's going to do. So have a look again at verse 21 to 24. It's a little bit complicated, but we'll just unpack that a bit. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Physicality is not going to matter anymore. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. They only had the first five books of Moses. Um, The Messiah was going to come from the Jews. 23 and 24 are critical, but the hour is coming. and is now here when... The true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Now, I want you to hear me on this. As humans, there's always a physical place for worship, but physicality is not the essence of worship. As humans, there's always a physical place for worship, but physicality is not the essence of worship. 
What's Jesus saying? Look, it's all going to be irrelevant pretty soon anyway. Where are we headed? Well, before long, and John's already flagged this back in chapter 2. Before long, Jesus is going to die on the cross and his body is going to become the temple. So these other physical temples are not going to be the meeting place between God and humanity anymore. It's going to be Jesus and his body. This is the age in which we live. Um, So the question you could ask at this point in time, well, how do you go about this worship that Jesus speaks of? Well, he's pretty clear about it in spirit and in truth. Now, in some ways, it's always been in spirit and in truth even before Jesus, even though he talks about a new age. But his comment about a new age coming is that there's a new thing happening. There's a new era. Temples are going to be done away with and people will connect directly with God. It won't be about physical places anymore. So what will it be about? Well, the spirit that Jesus uh, is speaking of here in John chapter 4 actually isn't the Holy Spirit. It's actually our spirit. And I think the text here makes room for us to look at it from two different angles. So let me give you God's perspective on worshipping in spirit and in truth and from our perspective, from God's perspective. We need the work of the Holy Spirit on our spirit. We need the regeneration of the spirit to change our hearts so we can turn up in the worship of God. The other thing that we need is we need the truth. And who is the truth? Well, the truth is Jesus. True worship is Jesus-focused. It's focused on the truth and we, in the sense that we have to engage with God's reality as it truly is in the person of Christ. That's, that's spirit and truth. The spirit needs to work on us. We need to come to Jesus. Let me speak from our perspective The spirit, worshipping in spirit and truth from our perspective, is the spirit of, the spirit there is the spirit of you and me. What's what's the person's spirit? Well, it's the non-physical part of you. And I don't don't know whether you're a Christian or you're not a Christian today, but uh, we are not just physical beings. We are not just physical beings. There is a non-physical part of us. And here's the bottom line. If you're going to worship God rightly, the non-physical part of you needs to worship God. It's far more than outward actions or attitudes. It must come from your spirit, from who you are, from the center of your being. That's spirit from our perspective. What about truth? Well, I think this is really relevant in the case of um, this Samaritan woman, right? It has to be real and authentic. It has to be honest. I, I cannot help but think that this has got a whole lot of relevance to the woman who didn't come to Jesus in a particularly clean way about the five husbands that she's had. What, what's the kind of truth and honesty that God's looking for? I'll tell you this. You have to turn up with your affections for Jesus, warts and all. Interesting that Jesus has to say this for fallen humans, but in another sense, it's probably not that much of a surprise. So here's what I think uh, Jesus is saying, what, what true worship is, that the Spirit works in us to lead us to Jesus, to see the truth, to see God's reality, and then we turn up, warts and all, authentically fallen, 
honest from the center of our beings and worship God. Now, that's weird. Do you know, do you know why that's weird? Because if you're broken and messy, there's no worse place, theoretically, anywhere than being in the presence of a righteous, holy God. There's no bank robber in the world that wants the police to show up when they're robbing a bank. So if they don't rob it and just go, I really hope the cops come. Like 500 of them. Right? They don't do it. Because you don't want to kind of get busted in the middle of doing something wrong, but... The Spirit actually does something inside of us where we actually want God and we want to move toward God, but we're not acceptable to God in our own right. And these are the kinds of worshippers that God wants. This is what Jesus says in John 4, I'm looking, I'm seeking, the Father is seeking worshippers who turn up. They turn up and it's not just a ritual. They don't just come to church. I mean, I don't think anyone comes to church at 8 o'clock on a Sunday morning just for a ritual, right? There's some of the churches at 10.30 probably. Or not churches you could go to, but it's, it's not about just doing a ritual. It's about they turn up and they're genuine. They center on him and they worship him and love him, but they can't seem to get their stuff together. And it just feels weird. Have you ever had this? Where it's like, I really want God. With the core of my being, I really want God, but yet I feel so unacceptable to Him. Have you ever felt that? I have so many times. It's like, this doesn't go together. And, and you know, I'll just say to you, uh, I'd encourage you today, don't add big fancy words to your prayers. <laughs> just turn up. You know, the the great news about Jesus down the track in John is that he's going to go to the cross and he's going to pay the sacrifice and the penalty to clean you up completely. And if you've trusted him by faith, there's a sense in which he's done that. So when you come to God, the kind of worshipper that God wants is someone who... turns up. And they're honest and authentic. They worship him out of their very being. Turn up with the heart that you have for him. You know, the message uh, translates one of those uh, verses toward the end there about God is spirit and those who worship him should worship in spirit and truth. The message goes like this. Worship out of your very being because God always does things out of his very being. Always. That's the kind of worship as God wants. So let me um, let me ask you a few questions. And uh, these, if if you go away from these questions thinking I've got to do some more stuff, you've missed the point. You've totally missed the point on it. All right, because I'm not talking about you've got to go and do better about something. Because if you're saved, if God's saved you and the Spirit has worked in your heart, you know there's something I know about you is that you actually love Jesus. Yeah, you can put all sorts of other clutter over the top of it, but you actually love Jesus. 
And sometimes I think we just got to let that, let that loose, right? Let that love for Jesus loose. You know, that's why in our um, baptism vows, one of the questions is, do you love Jesus? And all of you, maybe, maybe some of you, I should say, maybe some of you sit there and you go, oh, that's a pretty simple question. You know, but it's profound too, isn't it? Because no one gets to love Jesus unless God does something in your heart. And if you're a Christian, if you belong to Jesus, if you're saved, you love him. <laughs> and you should probably just let that love for him go a little bit more. So let me ask you a few questions. Is Jesus the center of your affections? Think about all the things that you, that you love that get you going. Is Jesus in that mix? Is he at the top of that mix? Second one. Do you like him? Oh, do you? Three. What were you expecting when you came to church today? For you, was it about... And I, please don't hear me putting pressure on you. But for you, is it about Jesus? I love Jesus so much. And, and to just come and to, and to sing songs about him and to listen to someone talk about him up the front and to have someone pray for me and ask Jesus to bless me, that, that's amazing. It's amazing. How much of your Christianity is about going through the motions? I've got an amazing interview that hopefully we're going to have next week from someone in the church who's just discovered a relationship with God after being in the church for lots and lots of years. It's beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. Went through the motions. Did the religious things. How much of your Christianity is about going through the motions? How much do you talk to Jesus? Now again, I'm not telling you you've got to go away and do stuff. But worship in spirit and in truth, the giving, the kind of worshippers that the Lord's, the, the Father seeks, just overflows out of them. Now you, you could at this point in time just go, it's not overflowing out of me. So you know what a good prayer would be? Jesus, help it to overflow out of me. Okay. Because you just talk to him, right? If the, in your spirit, in the non-physical part of who you are, if you, if you come to him honestly, you, you just, you'll talk to him. You'll probably talk to him all the time. Um, how much do you read scripture? You know, you, you just, you just want to hear what he's got to say. You, you sing worship songs at home when no one's around and may, perhaps even you might even raise your hands. And, and maybe you sing really, really bad. And that's why you put the music loud, even when no one's home. So no one can hear you, even though there's no one there to hear you. But you put the worship music on and you sing really, why do you do it? You, well, you do it because you love him. No one's on your back. 
that you must listen to a worship song and sing out loud in your home on your own every day. You read scripture, you sing worship songs, you listen to preachers in your spare time because you want to hear what Jesus has to say to you. Here's a good one. When was the last time you were stirred up about Jesus? Yeah, it's not all about emotions, but if I never had any emotions ever toward my wife and I said that I loved her, do you think there would be a problem? And I'm not talking about being emotional. I'm not talking about crying. I'm just talking about any emotional, any emotions, like enjoying someone, celebrating with someone. You want to be with them. When was the last time you were stirred up about Jesus? Oh, here's, here's a beauty. Now, the next one you've got to be careful, right? Because Christians can get a bit weird sometimes, but just go with me on this one. Uh, do you do embarrassing things sometimes because you love him? Now, we know that we can get weird, right? Does anyone know what I'm talking about? Christians can get weird sometimes. But do you know when, um, when someone loves someone else, Sometimes, I've heard this, like sometimes everyone outside of that couple, they see, for example, what the, um, the husband's done for his wife or the, the boyfriend's done for the girlfriend and people go, that is like the weirdest thing. <laughs> but inside, that relationship is like the most beautiful thing, isn't it? Do you, do you get what I'm saying? You with me? And, and there'll probably be some examples of that where between you and Jesus it makes all sorts of sense, but to an out, outside observer it's like, oh man, that's, that's interesting. Do you uh, treat coming to church like going to a temple? Is it a physical thing that you're doing? Or is it something that comes out of your very, the core of your very being? Well, the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. The Father's looking for you, He's looking for that kind of worship. And do you know something? The Father, through Jesus, was looking for this woman to worship him in spirit and in truth. Here's where we're going to finish. What does Jesus do? He brings it home. If you've still got your uh, Bibles open there at... Um, got the wrong verses up there. If you've still got your Bible open there at John 4, go to verse 25. Woman said to Jesus, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When he comes, he'll tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. This is just a beautiful end to the discussion. Do you know what she's doing at this point? She's saying this. She's saying, one day, someone is going to come and they're going to fix this stuff. They're going to fix this debate. They're going to bring some clarity to it. And in her disclosing that to Jesus, she's actually disclosing her longing for the Messiah the one who would come, the one who would make things right. She's going, he's going to sort it out. He's the one. We're in a mess here. We don't know what to do, but someone's coming and they're going to sort it out. And you know what? When he comes, everything's going to be okay. Everything is going to be okay. If you had to stop and consider where you see this kind of longing in our society, where do you think it pops up? Interesting question. I think sometimes, now disappointment is attached to it, but I think sometimes people have that kind of hope of the government. 
They think the government is uh, supposed to help and save people. So people hope in the government, but at the same time they're very disappointed in the government because they're supposed to be the ones that make things right. But you know the place where I think this shows up the most strongly in our culture is in the superhero genre. That's where it shows up. Superheroes are the ones that are supposed to come and make things right. We watch them and we know that humanity can get into an almighty mess. But there's someone who is like us, yet unlike us, who can help. Someone who can save the day. Unbeknownst to this Samaritan woman, she was sitting next to someone better than Superman. Wasn't she? Now Jesus does something really strange here. Uh, He actually admits that he's the Messiah. If you go to the other Gospels, you'll find that Jesus doesn't really do that. Uh, He's not very forthright in saying that he's actually the Messiah because there's this desire in the culture at the time to make him a kind of Messiah he was never going to be, a military one. But sitting next to a well in Samaria in the middle of the day, talking with likely a five times divorced woman with no risk of being hoisted on people's shoulders and made king, he tells her, I'm the one that you've been waiting for. I'm the one that you've been looking for. It's beautiful. And do you know his admission of who he is to her is an invitation for her to come, to come. And here's where I want to finish this morning. What are you waiting for? She was waiting for clarity on the matter. And she knew the Messiah would bring it. What are you waiting for? You're waiting for peace? You're waiting for comfort? Perhaps you're waiting for justice. Perhaps like the woman, you're waiting for clarity. Waiting for love. Waiting for healing. Perhaps you're waiting for guilt-free pleasure. You need to know that it's Jesus who brings it. You don't get them without him. See, if your life is not right and you don't know what to do, (laughs) if you have moments where you're waiting for someone to come in and make things right, is that you? If things in your life are unclear or incomplete, and I want to say this, and it's not a cheesy, simplistic thing. I need another couple of sermons to unpack all the, the truth behind this, but I want to say this to you, if you're waiting for that, the one that you're really looking for is Jesus. That's the one that you're looking for. So Christians today, if you find that longing in yourself, that's a good thing. Just don't go stuffing something else in there in its place. Get after Jesus. And if you're here this morning, you don't know Jesus and you're finding yourself this longing that things aren't right and someone needs to come and make it right, 
that's the longing that God put inside of you because you're actually made for Jesus. And when you're disconnected from him, you have this longing, but you don't have what your longing is pointing toward. You need Jesus. Jesus. 